This morning we are continuing uh, week two of our Advent series, What Child Is This? Where we're looking at five different stories from Scripture about people who encountered the Christ child. People who experienced Jesus firsthand and had to answer that question for themselves, what child is this? Just as we all have to answer for ourselves, who is Jesus Christ to you and to me? So today is the second Sunday of Advent. We lit the candle of peace this morning, and I'm feeling like we're in full holiday mode here. We got our beautiful decorations up. That was a fun endeavor for our staff. I don't know if you saw the video of the the first attempt at the can tree uh, that we (laughs) were building, but uh, Richard and Trey both sent me pictures of the tree collapsing uh, as uh, they tried to hold it together, which was uh, quite the the, uh, endeavor to get that thing up. I don't know how that bodes for the big one, Calvin, but we can, I'm sure we'll make it happen. Uh, effectively. Morgan and I decorated uh, our house, the kids, we, we put up our tree this week and hung our stockings and we keep having to reconfigure our stocking configuration because we keep adding children to our family. So uh, started out with just me and Morgan and our stockings then we added the dog's stocking because when you're just the two of you and you have a dog, the dog gets their own stocking and then we had a baby and the dog's stocking got bumped of course and we added the, the baby's stocking and then we added maize and we thought we had that figure out. Now we have to add a a fifth stocking for Isaiah as well this year. So it's been a sweet time for us. And we put our our tree up. We have this artificial tree that someone gave us that's 12 feet tall. It's huge. And we we decorated it. And I realized that you can either have a beautiful tree in your home or a sentimental tree, right? It's really hard to have both a beautiful and a sentimental tree. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? A beautiful tree has like a theme to it, right? Everything's white and gold or everything's, you know, outdoorsy or something. Everything's, you know, red and and green and perfectly placed and all the ornaments match and that kind of thing. Uh, Our tree is very much a sentimental tree only. It's a hodgepodge of weird ornaments that have come down through our family through the ages and some of them our kids made in preschool and some of them Morgan and I made when we were in preschool as well. So after we we laughed at the the funny pictures of me and Morgan as kids that were on the ornaments that we made in preschool and and we smiled at the warm memories of our grandparents and and the ornaments that they'd given us in their pictures, we, we made hot chocolate and we read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2 just like I did when I was a kid in my family. And I I said last week that Luke 2 is probably one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. And it came to pass that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed. That's how it begins, right? That brings back memories, doesn't it, for a lot of us, just hearing those words in the, the King James Version. And for, we looked at last week, at the end of Luke 2, the story of Simeon right? So part of our Advent series on what child is this, we talked about how Simeon and Anna at the end of Luke chapter 2 encounter the Christ child in the temple. And that's a lesser known story. But this morning we're going to hit a familiar story, the story of the shepherds from Luke chapter 2. And we're going to answer the question, what child was, this, th- was Jesus to the shepherds? How did they answer the question, what child is this? We saw last week that, that Simeon was a devout and righteous man. He was in right standing with God and with people and how God used him to proclaim the consolation of Israel, the hope of the world, the comfort that had come into the world and the hope that comes from that. Well, today we're going to look at the peace that came to the shepherds that was announced to them by the angels in the fields. 
I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories. I think one of my favorite Christmas songs comes from this story. I didn't know this, but uh, my favorite Christmas album is Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God. If you don't have it, you should get it today and just listen to it, the whole thing, front to back. It's an amazing, amazing story that covers starting with Moses and starting with uh, David, King David, and tracing all the way up to the birth of Christ. It doesn't get to Jesus until song number seven. It sets the scene for it all the way up. And he has a song in there called While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks. And I didn't realize it's based on a song that was published in the year 1700 by an Irish hymn writer named Nahum Tate. And the text is the same text that he uses. And it says, while shepherds watched their flocks by night, all seated on the ground, the angel of the Lord came down and glory shone around. Fear not, said he, for mighty dread had seized their troubled mind. Glad tidings of great joy I bring to you and all mankind. To you in David's town this day is born of David's line, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this shall be the sign. The heavenly babe you there shall find in human view displayed, all meanly wrapped in swathing bands and in a manger laid. Thus spake the seraph, and forthwith appeared a shining throng of angels praising God on high, who thus addressed their song, all glory be to God on high, and to the earth be peace. Goodwill henceforth from God to man begin and never cease. Beautiful text, beautiful story. So before we dive into the text, let's get some background and set the scene. You know that Joseph and Mary live in, in Nazareth, right? A town in the north of Israel. It's a little fishing village off the Sea of Galilee. And they travel 80 miles south to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem because this uh, decree went out from Caesar that everyone had to return to their hometown in order to be counted so the Roman Empire would know how much to tax each area. You know that Caesar was the most powerful man in the world at this time. He was the most powerful man on the planet. He ruled basically what was the known world at this time. And God knew this, right? And the fact remains that although Caesar was in charge of the known world, that God was still sovereign over all creation. That God was enacting his plan of salvation for the cosmos. And God used Caesar to be a part of that because God uses whom he will, including the emperor of the known world. You see, by issuing this edict, Caesar was helping fulfill the prophecy that Micah chapter 5 verse 2 said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Caesar played a part in making that happen because God used him to bring about his promises. And we know that Bethlehem is the city of David. It's the city that King David and his line hailed from. And we also know that the Old Testament prophets told us the Messiah would come from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah. And the word Bethlehem means actually house of bread. Bethlehem, right? It's house of bread. What a perfect place for the one to be born who would later describe himself as the bread of life. How, how highly appropriate for Jesus to be born in the house of bread. And while Mary and Joseph are there, she gives birth, Luke 2 says, to her firstborn son, and she wraps him in swaddling cloths, and she lays him in a feeding trough in the barn because the traveler's hotel was completely booked up. Imagine that. Jesus 
Christ, an eternal part of the Holy Trinity, who was pre-existent before all time with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, who enters into our world and puts on flesh. And how does he do it? Is he, is he born in, in a, a manger of uh, gold and marble in a palace, fanned by servants and, and given the, the finest you know, milk of the land to eat? No, he's laid in a feeding trough, a dirty trough in a barn full of animals. This is the kind of savior that we worship. This is the centerpiece of our faith as Christians, not a, a warrior king who came to earth to fight and free Israel, but a lowly baby who was weak and laid into a manger, and yet he was the center of all power in the universe. That's the beauty of Christianity, that God came to us. We don't have to go to God. So who gets dibs on seeing the baby first? You know, when, when Morgan and I had our kids, you know, we had family waiting in the waiting room, and you can only bring so few back at a time, and they were all jockeying for who gets to come back first. You know, basically it comes down to the mamas, right? Is it my mom or Morgan's mom that's going to come back first? So who did God let see the baby first? Was it Caesar, the most important man in the world? No. Was it the mayor of Bethlehem? Did he get to come see the baby first? No. To whom does God announce that the Messiah has arrived? Does he tell the, the high priest in Jerusalem? Does he announce it to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers of that day, the people of God? No. He sends an angel to tell a bunch of dirty, uneducated, working class shepherds who are ceremonially unclean and physically unclean out in the fields doing their blue collar job. Look at verses 8 and 9 of Luke chapter 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. Shepherds. Why shepherds? Why not someone more important? Why not someone more influential? Why not someone who is capable of, you know, writing something beautiful about how God announced this? Or why not someone who had the resources maybe to go send, you know, armies across the world to announce this good news? Why shepherds? Well, the Bible talks a lot about sheep, doesn't it? We know that Jesus himself often used the imagery of sheep and shepherding in his teaching. Jesus is the one who said, I am the good shepherd in John 10, right? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And yet we also know that Jesus was himself the spotless lamb whose sacrifice atones for the sins of the world, including yours and mine. So Jesus was both shepherd and sheep. Who better to announce the arrival of the Messiah than shepherds, right? Shepherds makes a lot of sense when you think about the Bible in context. And also, shepherds are not easily fooled, are they? Think about it. These are practical, worldly kind of guys who aren't prone to making up fantasy stories, are they? If they said that they saw an angel army descend and proclaim to them good news and peace that was uh, um, for the world, then people would believe them. They, they had a certain credibility that is highly effective in evangelism, isn't it? And the, the text tells us that at first one angel shows up, probably Gabriel, the messenger angel, but then a, a whole host of, of angels appear with him. 
And before that, it says the glory of the Lord shone around them and it freaked them out. They were terrified by the glory of the Lord. You see, they had never experienced anything like this because the glory of the Lord had been absent really from the world for centuries before. We read stories in the Old Testament about God's Shekinah glory descending in amazing, powerful ways. When Moses dedicated the tabernacle in the desert, God's glory rushed in and filled the tabernacle, and the Israelites were forced to fall on their faces and worship. When Solomon dedicated the the beautiful temple in Jerusalem that he built, the same thing, the, the Shekinah glory of the Lord descends and swooshes into the temple in such a way that the priests are forced to leave. They can't even stand to be in the temple. It's so full of God's glory. And that's what happens when the angels come to tell the world that the Messiah has been born. The Shekinah glory of the Lord shines and, and they don't know what to do with it. So they're fearful. So look at the, what the angel says to them in verse 10. Don't panic, he says. The angel says to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of all. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Fear not is the first thing he tells them. Fear not. This is a central theme in the, in the Christmas story. Gabriel, when he shows up to Zechariah and, and to, uh, to Mary, he tells them, don't be afraid. They're, they're freaked out by this angel showing up and telling them, I'm going to do something in your life that you may not understand. That's going to be hard. It's going to be weird, but it's going to be good, right? And so don't be afraid. It, it makes me wonder how often in our own lives, do we miss out on the amazing things that God wants to do through us and for us because we're freaked out by them, because they scare us, because we're afraid of change or newness in our lives. It's clear here that when God does something new in someone's life that it's, it is scary. It's okay to, to admit that, that's scary. But there's no place in a Christian's life for fear, is there? We've mentioned this before, one of my favorite verses. It's worth memorizing, 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and love and self-control. It's a great one to remember. Next time you're tempted to, to be afraid, next time you're tempted to just run to fear, remember that that's not who God's made us. If you're a Christian, God's given you a spirit of power and love and self-control, not fear and timidity. There is no room for fear in the life of a Christian. And the the reason the angel tells the shepherds not to fear is that he's bringing them good news. He says, I bring you good news. The the words in Greek are euangelizomai umin, and it literally means I preach the gospel to you. That's literally what it means. I preach the gospel to you. That's, That's the same phrasing in the New Testament. Don't be afraid. I preach the gospel to you. And what is the gospel? What is this this good news that the angel has for the the shepherds? Do you know what the gospel is? It's a word that you hear a lot in church. Yeah, we're supposed to spread the gospel to the world. What does that mean? What does that look like, actually? Well, for starters, it looks like an angel telling a bunch of shepherds, I bring you peace to the world. That's part of it. You see, the, the gospel 
the, the word in Greek is euangelion, evangel. It, it, you means good, right? And angel is like a messenger, message. It's good message. It's good news. That's the gospel. The good news is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The good news is that God didn't abandon us to the same sinking boat of sin that we were all born into, but that he came to rescue us in the flesh because he loves us and he wants us to be part of his family, adopted into his kingdom forever. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus paid the price that we could never pay ourselves, that he paid the debt that we owed, that we were incapable of paying in order to make us right with God and with each other. That's the gospel. Let's not forget that. This is the core of our faith as Christians. Everything else is peripheral. It's what drives our missions offering that you, you saw on this screen, not that one, but that you saw on the screen earlier. It's what drives our church, but it's also what should drive our very lives. The gospel changes the way we treat one another. The gospel changes the way we approach marriage and relationships. The gospel changes everything. Let's not forget that. That's what Christmas is all about. So the good news that the angel talks about here is for all people. Gabriel announces this good news is not just for the Israelites or for the shepherds or for Bethlehem, but it's for all people. It, remember, this is what God told Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is why Matthew and Luke trace the genealogy of Jesus back to who? Abraham. Because this is God's plan from the beginning. When God told Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless the world through you, he was talking about Jesus Christ. And then suddenly the hosts of heaven, the angel armies appear in the skies with Gabriel. And they're not there though to make war on the earth, they're there to proclaim glory to God. Look at verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels are, are there to first give credit to where it's due. Glory be to God. God glorifies himself as he should appropriately because he is the greatest thing in the cosmos. So he glorifies himself by, by sending these angels. But then after glorifying God, they proclaim to the earth peace. You know the prophet Isaiah told us that the Messiah would be what? The prince of, Jamie and Calvin just read it, the prince of peace. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about this idea of peace, especially in the Old Testament, as being so much more than the absence of conflict, right? Peace in the Old Testament is shalom. Shalom is, is, is something more than, you know, just because America right now is not actively engaged in a war that's very obvious to us doesn't mean that we have peace in our lives, does it? Peace, shalom of God, means more than just absence of conflict. Peace from God means flourishing. It means thriving. It means peace and prosperity. It means things being the way that God wants them to be in our lives. That's the shalom that Jesus is the prince of. That's the shalom that the angels announced to the earth. Peace, prosperity, flourishing, thriving on the earth. That's what the angel was saying. You know that when God shows up in someone's life and reveals something to them like this that's, that's life-changing, that action must follow. Revelation 
by God must lead to action on our part, obedience and faith on our end. The shepherds were then compelled to go and seek this baby. It led them to act on this news. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. God made it known to them and they acted on it by believing God and leaving to go and seek this baby. And the action that it led to was a search. The word found, they found the baby, means after a search. They journeyed to Bethlehem to find this baby that the angel had told them about. This is to be the pattern for our lives, Christians. God reveals something to us and then we act on it. I'm so excited about 2017 already. We're going to challenge the entire church to read through the Bible in a year together on the same day, on the same page, literally. There's grace for days that you miss, okay? You, it's, okay it's not a legalistic thing, okay? But we do want to encourage everyone to, to begin January 1, reading the Bible through. We're going to have plans. You will have apps. They'll be on the website. It's going to be in the weekly. We're going to, you know, hit you with it. I'm going to be preaching from those texts in January. We're going to encourage one another to do this. But imagine if God's revealing to us the same thing as we're reading Genesis 1 and Matthew 1 together, and then we act on it. Imagine what that could do for our church and for our family of faith here at Woodmont. God reveals to us, and then we act on it. That's a good pattern for us to remember. And then look what happens when the shepherds find the baby. Verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. You see, there's a, a missionary impulse here. The shepherds are compelled to not just keep this revelation to themselves, but to make it known to everyone in Bethlehem that they meet. They're telling all the folks there in Bethlehem, this is what the angels said to us. Revelation is not meant to be received and then just held on to privately. The Christian life was never meant to be done alone in your closet. Yes, your prayer time is important alone. Yes, your Bible study time is important alone, but it can't end there. This is why, partly why we have church. This is partly why we have small groups. We want everyone in here to feel welcome as a part of a church within a church, right? I know a lot of your small groups have become that for you. Your Sunday morning Bible study groups, we encourage everyone to get plugged into one of those. Or our Tuesday morning men's prayer group, or our Wednesday afternoon women's prayer group, or knitwits, if you like to knit, come Tuesday afternoon. Or, uh, you know, we have so many different small groups you can get involved in and share with others what God is doing in your life so you can sharpen one another as you discern what God is up to in your own life together. So it's not just other Christians that we're sharing this good news with, is it? How often do you talk about your faith with people at work? How often do you have spiritual conversations outside of these walls? How often do you talk about your faith with your kids? How often do you pray with your spouse? How often do you pray with, with the people around you, your neighbors, your coworkers? If this is actually good news that Jesus came, that, that God sent his son so that we could have life everlasting, then we should be living ambassadors for this message, right? Everywhere that we go, we should want to proclaim this good news. We should, it should pepper our speech every day. 
We can't help but talk about what the Lord is doing in our lives, how he's bringing about peace and prosperity and making us thrive. We want to share that with others so they can thrive too. This peace is for all people. Let's not forget that. He brings shalom to our everyday existence no matter what we're going through. No matter how hard the circumstances of our lives, there is peace and prosperity and shalom. You see, these shepherds, after they encounter the, the, the living Messiah, what do they do? They return to their old jobs. They return to their old problems. They didn't go away. God didn't wave a wand and magically solve all the issues that they had back in Bethlehem. They went back to those same sheep, those same smelly sheep. But they went back as changed people. They, they went back to that old job, but they were not old anymore. They were new. They approached everything now through a different lens because they had been changed forever by an encounter with the living Christ. They had met the Prince of Shalom in the flesh, and all their old problems were now seen through a different light because they were changed forever by God's grace in Jesus Christ. In the, the past two weeks here at Woodmont, I've had the privilege and the honor, really, of of meeting with and, and talking to three of our members who've all uh, lost their moms in the last two weeks to, to death. Uh, we've, we've, Richard and I have met and counseled with, with uh, three different families, and, and in every case, it struck me the remarkable peace and the confidence in their Savior that all three of these families showed. These were not uh, non-Christians. These were people of faith who were assured that their loved ones, that their mothers were with their Lord in glory. You know, yes, death still comes to us all, okay? There's still sickness and poverty and disease and homelessness and, and horrible things in this world. But when we are made new in Christ and the peace of Christ comes to us, we see things differently. We see our, our marriages differently. We see our friendships differently. We see parenting in a different way. Our jobs are now something that is a part of what God is doing in this world, bringing about peace. This is why the angels sang peace among those with whom God is pleased. For God's people, us Christians now, the new life in Christ is a whole new way of existing in the world. It's a new humanity that God is making. It's a way of living that leads to peace and prosperity, to shalom and all that we do. So, this morning, may your Advent season be filled with shalom. May it be filled with peace and prosperity. May you seek to bring about the kind of thriving and flourishing that God came to bring us in your own life and in the lives of those around you. May you find wholeness and completeness. That's what shalom means as well. Wholeness and completeness. May you find rest for your soul in the only place that you truly can in the Savior who was born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago and laid in a manger outside of Bethlehem. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the shalom that you came to bring us. God, I know so many of us in this room this morning don't feel shalom right now. We feel lost or discouraged. We may feel lonely around this time of year or, or sad. God, I know many people in this room who are grieving. But God, I, I pray that you would help us to grieve not as those who are without hope, 
because you came to announce shalom to us. Through your son, Jesus Christ, you have made peace. You have broken down the dividing wall of hostility between each other and between you. You have made us one with yourself through the precious atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And you've made us one with each other. God, I pray that you would help us to feel your peace, to know your shalom in a very intimate and real way this Advent season. God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, so that we could have peace and prosperity and flourishing and completeness and wholeness in him. Forgive us when we seek other places for those things, God, for we confess again today that it's only in you that those things are found. God, I pray this morning that if there's anyone who doesn't know you, who needs your shalom in a desperate way, that they would make that decision this morning, that they would surrender their lives to you and receive the peace that you came to bring them. God, I pray for those who are hurting today, for those who are sad, that you would give them peace that can only come from you, a peace that passes understanding, a shalom that leads to flourishing and newness and wholeness in their lives. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.